Welcome to the creepy side of NEPA. I am Dan Kozlowski. As you guys might remember, last week we made a big announcement here on the creepy side of NEPA. We are actually starting a new podcast called The Creepy Side of America. Don't worry, we are not stopping The Creepy Side of NEPA. The Creepy Side of America will be another show in addition to this one. Tonight, we released the first episode of The Creepy Side of America. I also wanted to release it to our audience here on The Creepy Side of NEPA to let everyone sort of hear and get a feel for our new show. If you like The Creepy Side of America, be sure to follow that podcast starting today. We don't want to waste any more time with an introduction. Let's let the announcer take over. From the terrifying minds that brought you the creepy side of NEPA comes the creepy side of America podcast. From creepy hotels where the guest never left to forgotten asylums with broken pasts. Come join us as we explore some of the darker stories surrounding the United States. Put on your nightlight, because we are about to dive into the creepy side of America. Welcome to the creepy side of America. I am Dan Kozlowski. The creepy side of America is a new podcast series we're doing here at WNEP. And different from the creepy side of NEPA, we are actually going to bring some other co-workers here at WNEP onto the show to sort of co-host different episodes. In this episode, we have Emily Gertschman. Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dan. Happy to be here. I'm happy to have you join me for the first episode of The Creepy Side of America. We have a good one in store, too, I think. Who do we have tonight? So we talked with Mac Bauman from NYC Gangsters and Ghosts for this very first inaugural episode of Creepy Side of America. And it definitely was an interesting interview, especially that combination of gangsters and then also ghost stories. What a perfect tour. It was. You think you'd go to New York City to go see a Broadway show, and Mac kind of showed you can go on a ghost tour while you go there, too. Let's get right into the interview. Mac, welcome to the show. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being with us. So if you wouldn't mind just getting started and telling us about what you do with the Gangsters and Ghost Tour. Yeah, because when we were doing a little bit of research, it definitely sounds like a very interesting tour. You don't really hear many gangster tours around. Yes, <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely a good time. I enjoy myself very much. Um, so it's technically like a two-part tour. First part is gangster. We start in the old neighborhood of the Five Points neighborhood, kind of where uh, the first gangs formed in New York City. Uh, then we head more into proper Chinatown, talk about the Tongs, these very wealthy institutions in Chinatown and how they kind of bankrolled different gangs from the early 1900s all the way through the mid-1990s. And then we spend a good portion of the gangster tour on the mafia in Little Italy. And we dive pretty deep into them, though, you know, the mafia itself, you could spend, you know, a whole week just talking about them. Of course. Them. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of stories in New York about them. Oh, yeah. And, and people, you know, we're kind of, I don't know, I feel like New York would not be the same without the mafia. They, it's part of the history, yeah. It is. They really formed it, yeah. And so then from there, uh, we make a little quick trip over to Washington Square Park where we get uh, a bit spookier and we start the ghost tour there. We um, talk about some suicides in the area. We talk about some fires uh, a mass grave, and then we usually end with uh, 
the House of Death. It's over on uh, 10th Street. Oh, boy. And so this is all uh, a walking tour. You're mentioning all these different locations. Everyone just kind of walks around. Yeah, all the walking tour. It's, um, it is a good amount of walking, but it's very New York to be yeah. walking everywhere. Yep. <laughs> now, are all the ghost stories mob-related? No. So it technically is like two-part tour. Um, though there is a little overlap uh, in the Washington Square Park, uh, in the arch itself, actually. Kind of yeah. where the two, the two parts of the tour meet, so kind of fitting where that would be the, the overlapping point. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. 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 Do you want to hear some ghost stories? That's, sure. That's why you're here, right? Of <laughs> yeah, course we want to yeah. hear them. I'm like, shall we get into it? Of course. <laughs> let's, let's hear some of your favorites. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so hmm, let's start with, um, so uh, currently Washington Square Park is pretty surrounded by NYU. Um, it's kind of all NYU territory now, but before it was NYU, it was the Garment District, uh, kind of starting in the mid-1800s. Uh, though now the Garment District has moved up into like the 30s streets of Manhattan. Come 1880, uh, this garment called the Shirtwaist becomes really popular. There's a lot of money to be had in it in that it is worn by women and women are kind of entering the workforce in the United States for the first time during that time. And so these different shirtwaist factories start popping up and people start making a ton of money. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory pops up in uh, what's the building? 23 Washington Place. Uh, it is now the Brown Building, which is owned by NYU, but a bit ironically named, as we will soon discover, it used to be called the Ash Building. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory pops up in the top three floors. The top floor, the 10th floor, was the executive and administrative floor, and then the actual factory itself was the ninth and the eighth floor. Uh, now, this factory made a lot of money because they cut a lot of corners. Uh, most of their workers were uh, young Jewish and Italian immigrants uh, that they were paying close to nothing. There were constant walkouts, constant strikes. They would break fire codes all the time and they would pay a little fine but never actually change anything. And this really, really comes to a head March 25th, 1911 when on the eighth floor a fire breaks out. Uh-oh. <laughs> now, have you ever made your own fire? In a in a fire yeah, pit like a, in my like backyard. Yeah, that's about as yeah, far okay. as we go, yeah. So you know you need your wood, right? As yeah. well as some like extra tinder to kind of get it. Yeah, a little going, kindling right? and yeah. things like that. Yep. Yeah. Now this is a garment factory. There's loose scraps of cloth everywhere. Oh, gosh. So <laughs> it's basically right. It it's sounds disastrous. To yes. Me. <laughs> it's it was uh a uh, house of cards really just I was going to say it probably went up quick I would imagine it quickly quickly spreads unfortunately and now the real kicker is that one of the poor ways that that would they would uh, treat the workers is that they would lock them in the factory so they were trapped <sighs> yeah they oh, were gosh. trapped According to the owners, uh, they wanted to cut down on a, uh, you know, unofficial uh, breaks and potential theft. I don't know. I really just think they were trying to work them as much as they could. You know. Yeah, that sounds so, terrible to be locked at work. Awful, <laughs> right? 
So they scramble about. They eventually get a door open, apparently. But like I said, they were breaking a lot of fire codes. And so this door, instead of being a push out door, was a pull in door. And so a few escape. But then in the chaos, they essentially lock it again as they're trying to push out this pull in door. The fire department shows up. Their ladders go to the fourth floor, though, and so that's not really any help. They get up their hoses, but with the water pressure of the early 1900s, it really only hits the outside of the eighth floor. It doesn't really get into the eighth floor to do any damage on the fire. And then lastly, they have these large safety trampolines, but those are only to be used of a height of about 60 feet. Now, this building, especially the eighth floor itself, is a lot higher than 60 feet and so instead of getting caught, the victims actually end up crashing through Oof. the um, safety trampolines. It's pretty rough. It sounds like they weren't prepared for a building that big at that time. No. I don't think they were. You know, they didn't have the technology. They didn't have the safety precautions. They didn't have the regulations to make sure people were keeping up with fire codes like they do now. Unfortunately, that is not the case anymore. We are I'm sure the fire codes are a lot different now than there was back then. Especially in New York, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially like buildings used to be, you know, all wood and they would go down in a second. Actually, there's an interesting thing about the gangster tours is a lot of fire uh, houses started off uh, as gangs um, because they didn't have like state funded firehouses. And so there would be these different fire gangs that would pop up and, and fight the fires. <laughs> um, but going back to the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, uh, 146 people died that day. Uh, it's still known as one of the largest industrial catastrophes in the United States. Wow. And kind of going back to those fire codes, there's a, a bit of a silver lining in that 300,000 people take to the streets and protest. A lot of labor laws were passed. A lot of child labor laws were passed because the youngest victim that day was only 14 years old. Uh, and then a lot of fire codes are revised and supervision is kind of heightened. And so if you look at the treatment of factory workers in the United States, it's kind of like pre-triangle, post-triangle. Um, now, the topic at hand. The ghosts. <laughs> The creepier what side of things. Yeah. So um, I actually went to NYU many, many moons ago. Um, and if you walk around those hallways on the eighth floor, it's a bit of a cliche, but you are met with lights that are never fully working. There's always a row that is out and then NYU will go in and fix it. That's obviously, you know, a big liability for a, a student hallway to be, you know, not fully lit. Of course. Um, right. And it's like not that's a it's a bad case of waiting to happen. So they'll go in and fix them and then they'll break again and then they'll fix them again and then they'll break again and they just can't seem to fix these lights for any sort of extended period. It's a bit strange. Um, then in 2017, uh, Bustle does this series of a woman psychic going around to different death sites where girls and women had died to try to get advice for the modern day woman. And she goes to the eighth floor. She goes to one of the classrooms and reaches out and these spirits come forward. 
and they say that they are 17-year-old sisters. She then, you know, begins to do a bit of her own investigation. It's like, all right, spirits, let me suss it out a little bit. And she goes to the death manifest, and she comes across 17-year-old Brenneman sisters that had died in the fire. She then does even more digging and finds that the you know brother was also in the fire um, and reached out to his grandson. You know, of course, the story had been passed down through the ages and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she then you know goes back in there and ends up turning the conversation around a bit into this lighter note, uh, ending it on a good note. In that she says, you know, what happened here. You did not die in vain because of what happened here. We ha- now have these, you know, fair rights. For you said all those labor and laws and different things got passed, and people really spoke out after that happened. Exactly, yeah. and the fire exactly. codes and whatnot. Sure. Yeah, it, it it turned that corner, which should have been turned many, many years before that, but you know, it was kind of this, almost like this involuntary sacrifice, right? This. Uh, moment of service uh and and you know it's 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 a really lovely ending <laughs> to i think a, a a tragic story really yeah and you said so this building is on nyu where you said you had went once upon a time so now is this a is this a public building that anyone could go into or is it strictly like only if you're nyu you go in this building it's only NYU Got students. It. yeah i've actually been giving some of these tours before and there'll be you know an nyu student every once in a while on it and they're like oh yes you've like you've experienced the lights right and i'm like yes of like course. you're part of a club <laughs> so people yeah, are yeah, still yeah. experiencing <laughs> things to this yeah. day Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's wild. And it's so, you know, you like see in movies and you're like, oh, the lights are flickering. Ha 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 ha. And then you actually get in that hallway and you're like, oh, this isn't funny. (laughs) It's different when it actually happens to you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You're like, this feels like something else. Um, Yeah. So that's the, the old location of the Ash building. It's the original facade of the building. Um, but of course, the the interior has been done over the ages. I now understand why it's called the Ash Building. Yeah, <laughs> or was called the yeah. Ash Building. <laughs> right. <laughs> what are some other kind of main main points of attraction on the tour? So, Washington Square Park itself, um, that area, from uh, the early colony of New York, kind of to the early eighteen hundreds. Uh, there was this big farming field where the park is now. It acted as a buffer between the early colony <clears throat> and the Lenape tribe that still held territory north of there. Though come the Revolutionary War in 1776, a lot of people are dying. The Revolutionary War at that time was the bloodiest war in the world. And so they need a place to put these bodies and they look on the outskirts of this colony and they're like, well, we think that farming field is a good place to put these bodies. And so they turn the farming field into a mass grave. I was going to say, I'm <laughs> like, I feel like this is the mass grave you mentioned earlier. <laughs> yep. Yep. Now, um, and how many bodies are we talking that they put in this yeah, grave? I don't think no. we're just talking one or two here. No. <laughs> just, you know, just a little bit. <laughs> just a, no, just no, a no, couple. No, no. It's so... It opened, you know, during the Revolutionary War. It has all of those bodies in there. But then after the war ends, yellow fever and cholera break out in the city. 
they go away and they come back a few times. Eventually, the graveyard closes in 1824. Now, between all of those deaths, there are around 20,000 bodies underneath Washington Square Park. Definitely more than one or two. (laughs) I wasn't expecting that many. No. Right. It's, It's a pretty wild fact. And having gone to NYU, I've spent a lot of time in Washington Square Park and never knew that. I was going to say, now knowing that, it's got to be a weird feeling when you go to that area. It's so strange because it's it's a pretty happy park. Like, it's a pretty vibrant park. And you just, knowing that fact and actually kind of letting it sit with you. Majority of people probably have no idea. Yeah, oh, no idea. People have no idea. I was going to say, I have friends who live in New York City, and I'm familiar with New York City, and I don't feel like I'm ever going to go to that park and feel the same again. Yeah, it's a a bit unsettling. Yeah. Especially, they're only like 10 feet below the ground. It's not like there's been like a lot of layering on top of this mass grave. And so they're pretty close to the surface. Um To your knowledge, do you know if any popped up over the years? So they've done a fairly good job at making sure they they don't pop up. For it being Um, a happy park, I think that'd be a priority. (laughs) Right. Um, Because after it was closed, actually, it was turned into military parade and practice grounds for a little bit. And while it was those parade grounds, uh, they would have a lot of occurrences of these bodies kind of coming to the surface. And then they decided to zoom the, just the top layer of the bodies and they put those over on Ward's Island. And so do you know when just, that exhumation happened at all by chance? Just curious. The, I'm not sure exactly when the, uh, when that happened, but the park or sorry, the parade grounds was uh, military parade grounds was functioning from 1824 to 1849. So 1800s, so probably, yeah. in between that range, yeah. And then it turns into the park that we see today uh, starting in 1849. And so the ghost hunting community of New York loves that area. They say because of all of those bodies, there's just so much residual energy. People have reported seeing... You know, these weird just phantoms lurking. There's, you know, so many winding pathways in Washington Square Park. And, you know, they'll catch like a vision of somebody under a lamp and then look away and then they'll be gone. Taking a picture of the area is the best way to see something, you know, paranormal in that in that area. They'll see a, a glowing orb or a green shimmer of something inside the picture. Yeah. Sure. And I I have a question for you. So how long have you been doing these tours? When did the have you been with the tours from the beginning or when did the tour start and when did you come aboard? Yeah. So I've actually been with the tours uh about a year and a half. Got it. Um I funny enough, I started doing them fall 2020 during lockdown. Oh gosh. In, um <laughs> virtual tours actually. So I would give the same exact tour, except people would stream in with this uh, app, and I would have like an Android and a uh, like a fancy selfie stick, like a gimbal, and they would stream in 
and I'd do the tour. And so you and would so, go walk around by yourself and do the tour, and they would just follow virtually. Yeah, so yeah, you would exactly. be the only one out there actually going on the tour. Yeah, and so it was all you know, all social distance, safe, and all that. Um, it was, That's it was, interesting. I never heard of a ghost tour doing that. Yeah, yeah, it was honestly a really good time, and so I just stuck with it afterwards. Um, you know, I get to meet some cool people that I normally would never meet, right? And I'm sure this a, this community a, that surrounds kind of the, the gangsters and ghosts, as you were kind of mentioning, the paranormal community is probably filled with some characters, so. Exactly. That's what I was, yeah, exactly. I was going to say, you know, it's a very particular type of person that picks a gangster and ghost tour. And most people that go on the tour are quite passionate about either one of the subjects or both of them. Right. And so it's, you know, I, I have a lot of enjoyment seeing their enjoyment of like, oh, that's where this is. Oh, I've read about that. Oh, my gosh, this is that place. Making that like, connection. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, It's definitely yeah. a good connection between the two of them. The two subjects sort of go hand in hand, I would think. Oh, they do. They go so well, especially, you know, I think maybe the gangsters have caused a lot of, you know, untimely deaths in, <laughs> yeah, their, of course. in their reign. <laughs> um, and so there's. I'm sure plenty of, you know, gangster ghosts walking around Little Italy. Sure. And have you have um, you ever had any particular encounters, like, while you've been out on a tour? Like, obviously, you know, you talked about, you know, people taking a photo and they see a light, a lit up orb or different kind of things like that. Or have there been any kind of those moments that you've personally experienced when you're out on a tour? So at the very last stop we give of um, the House of Death, Yes, I've seen it's like this big townhouse. It's like five floors. And I'll get, you know, I'll give the tour night quite often. And every once in a while, you'll see, you can see pretty well into some of the units. And there's just like, you'll catch a glimpse of somebody in the window, but, but it doesn't look like somebody. It just, it's a figure. And then you, you know, and you, Kind of like a shadow? Come again? Kind of like a shadow? Yeah, like this shadowy thing. Makes you look twice. It makes you look twice. And you're like, oh, maybe that was just a reflection. But I've seen it just too many times now for it to just be some sort of reflection or like my bad eyesight. <laughs> sure. And you mentioned this is yeah. at the House of Death. So where where exactly is that? And I'm, I'm curious as to why it's called the House yeah, of Death. I so... feel as though I have to ask that question. <laughs> oh, you, you must. You must. It's on, it's my favorite stop on the tour. It's the very last stop. I save it, you know, best for last. Um, so the House of Death is uh, 14 West 10th Street. And many, many stories about this place. The first one actually comes from uh, Mark Twain himself. He owned the building in the year 1900. Oh, this is dating back quite a little ways then. Oh, yeah. Pretty, pretty well back. Long history there. Uh, the story we get from one of his journals that was published post-mortem is just kind of this you know, random entry that is pretty easily overlooked, but... The story goes is that he's at his dining room table alone, eating some food. He looks into his fireplace to his right, and he sees a log, and it's on fire. That all checks out. But then it begins to float. He freaks out, 
obviously, as I think anybody would. Uh, He also has a pistol on his table. And so he grabs the pistol. He shoots the log. The log falls down, goes out, and a pool of blood spills from the log. Oh, boy. Wow. (laughs) Now, Mark Twain was a pretty uh, pragmatic man. He was kind of scientific. And so he brushes it off. He's like, you know what? It wasn't actually floating. I was drinking a little too much. A rat grabbed it from the fireplace and trying I to find some rat. reason. <laughs> yeah, just like really reaching for some reason, right? Like, sure, the rat jumped into the fireplace, right? Um, and then at the very end of his entry, he notes that um, if he was going to believe in the floating log, he would then have to believe in so much more. And he decidedly said, no, thank you. It was going to open a Pandora's <laughs> box, and he said, keep it closed. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a wild story to yeah. start off with. So, <laughs> we've got more for you. <laughs> <laughs> the House of Death is not done. <laughs> the House of Death is far from done. So, next story is 1933. We get this from an old police report. Uh, but by now, Mark Twain is long gone. A new family has moved in. Uh, one night... The daughter goes up to the mother of the household, terrified. She's seen a man in the house. They run around. They try to find the intruder. Uh, the authorities come, but they can't find anybody. So assuming that the daughter has made up this story, they go to her and they're like, you can't do this. Like, we love your playing with your imagination, but this was just a little, you know, too far. But then the daughter insists. No. I saw a man. He even said something. Oh, okay. You know, what did he say? You know, playing along, still thinking that she's uh, made this up. Right. Imaginary friend, right? Right, exactly. Like, you know, kids, they, they think of all sorts of things. But they also see things, I think, that other people don't. Mm-hmm. So they ask, what did he say? The daughter says that the man said... I am Clemens, and I has business to do. Oh, wow. Yes. That's not creepy at all. <laughs> right. He's got right. business. His business to do. Now, you know, Samuel Clemens being Mark Twain's real name. Um, now, when I was a child, I did not know that. Maybe this child was a bit precocious, right? Like we talked about, you know, a good imagination, Uh, But doing a little more digging, when Mark Twain owned the building, he was in a lot of financial hardship. And so it's tossed around that these, um, you know, hardships were tying him to the building those many years later. And so he was a bit stuck there. Yeah, that's kind of similar to um, another interview that we had. They kind of said there were a lot of, uh, in that case, there were a lot of suicides and things like that in the house. And so that would kind of keep those spirits there, like they had a connection and a reason to stay. Yeah, especially if they don't have, if they have some kind of unfinished business. And it sounds like maybe Mark Twain (laughs) might have had some unfinished business. Right. It's it's gonna tie you there. Like there's always there's always some reasoning, right? Um now. Still not done with this place. This place Now before you go any farther about the house, is it like a single family home or is it like an apartment building? How is the house like figured? Yeah, when um those first two stories it was a single family home. Okay. Um it is uh a five story home. 
But come uh, by 1957, it's split up into different apartment units. Okay. Yeah, and that is uh, the same way now. I, I hate um, to ask you, do people live in the house of death right now? If it's apartments, I feel like they have to be very brave people. But Or I not know. Be, or not know, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I'll be giving these, and people will be coming in and out. Oh, wow. And I yet to, I need one day, I will stop them and try to get a, a firsthand experience. Um, yeah, it's like, do you know thing. where you live? Do you just yeah. not care? <laughs> I Guess they just don't care. Maybe rent is a little cheaper. <laughs> yeah, maybe they get a discount. But if I walked out and saw a tour in front of my house at night, I would have some questions. <laughs> yeah, I'd be like, oh, what's going on? <laughs> uh, though, honestly, knowing New York, they'd probably be like, oh, you have some extra company. You're never, <laughs> you know, you got some friends all the time. You're paying extra. <laughs> they, they would try to swing it some way. Um, all right, so next story about this place. You mm-hmm. ready? Yep. 1957. Uh, so Jan we're like Bryan about 25 Bryan. years after this now, right? Because you said we were in the 1930s before. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So 25 years later, about uh, Jan Bryant Bartell moves into the very top unit with her husband. Um, she talks about at that at that time there was a housing crisis in New York that you know the there's really just. Um, low vacancy there weren't a lot of apartments around and so she found this place and she didn't really like it Uh, upon you know entering into the unit she immediately got some not great vibes but wasn't a lot of options and so she was like okay sure fine uh bartell herself was a bit of a broadway actress also a novelist Uh, and then you know, as she's living at 14 West 10th Street, she starts to pick up on some things, coming into some, you know, psychic abilities a bit. She, as describes, first picks up on this mist inside of the house. She sees the mist in her own unit. The mist then appears in the common stairwell. And then she sees it in another unit in the same building while visiting a friend downstairs. Then at night... She starts to pick up on these shadows on the wall that kind of begin to shift into these creature-like shapes, but nothing she'd ever seen before. And then lastly, she begins to pick up on what she describes as a substance without substance. That in the same room, in the corner, there's something, but also this, like, nothingness this void that's an interesting description <laughs> yeah i can't it's hard to picture that's for substance sure substance without substance substance without substance Oof. she describes that it uh quote chills her to the marrow right like the bone marrow to the core feeling a bit out of sorts a bit um you know new to her psychic abilities she decides to reaches out uh she feeling a bit you know, scared coming into these uh, psychic abilities and experiencing these paranormal things for the first time. She reaches out for help to this man named Hans Holzer. Now, he was one of the writers of the Amityville book. Uh, mm-hmm. You've probably heard of the, you know, Amityville horror yep. before. It certainly you know, has. That's in Pennsylvania, is it not? The Amityville house? I believe New York. Amityville's yeah, New Long York? Long Island. Yep. Which one am I thinking of? 
Smurl Haunting was in Pennsylvania. Oh, yep. yep. That was in West Pittsburgh. Yep, that's what I'm thinking of. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so... Um, he was one of the authors of Amityville. Go ahead, sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, so he wrote that and was um, kind of a lead, you know, paranormal investigator as well. So uh, Bartell reaches out to him. He goes to 14 West 10th Street and does his work. He does his investigation and eventually concludes that there are 22 spirits attached to, you know, the stairwells, the chandeliers, the curtains, everywhere inside of that house. He also concludes that these spirits are not particularly happy with Bartow, in that she is collecting her findings and going to write a book, right? She's a novelist inside of a haunted house. She sees how well the Amityville book did she sees an opportunity. Sure. Right? Can't blame her. No, I would I would do the same, actually. Yeah. But these spirits are not happy uh, that she's, you know, putting so much attention into them. So Holzer advises that she leaves, that she moves out. She says yes, but not yet. There's more work to be done. Eventually, after uh, Hans Holzer's advice, she moves out a year later. But within that year, in that building, nine people die. Oh boy! Wow! Right after she told her to move, right after he told her to move out. Yeah, over that year. From what kind of causes did they die? Natural or unnatural? Yeah, there's some natural causes. Uh, There's a couple of heart attacks. There's a couple of suicides, and there's even a murder inside of them. All in the same year in one building. All in a year. Wow. I don't know why it takes her nine deaths to finally move out. Right? Like, one, two wouldn't be enough. No, nine's the last straw. (laughs) Like, no matter how good the story is, I'm like, why why move out? Or, sorry. No matter how good this. Yeah, why stay? Like, (laughs) come on. Um, So she moves out. And begins to work on her final manuscript. She gets a publishing deal. She uh, sends it off to the publisher. It's out for about a month. And then she kills herself. Like, what? So so did the book ever get out? If she she got it to the publisher and then she passed away, did the book still ever get out then? Yeah, so it it went to print. It's called Spindrift, a spray from a psychic sea. Um, I actually got gifted it for Christmas. Um, I have it in my hand right now, actually. But I'm kind of, (laughs) I uh, I started reading it and then I stopped because I feel like I know too much already. (laughs) And and so I I don't know when I'm feeling brave, I'll pick it up like every once in a while, but. It's just, it's pretty wild. Wow. What a Christmas present, too. Someone, did someone right. give that to you after you started the tours? Yeah, they're like, oh, you did this tour. Let me find the book. I'm like, oh, thanks. I don't know if I want to read it. Yeah, it seems like a little bit of uncertainty around that whole story and book there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, there's actually one more story about this place. Sure. You ready? Yeah. So... Um, what is it? 1987. Uh, we're getting into recent, more more recent yeah. times here. <laughs> oh yeah, we're getting a little close to home. 
1987, Hedda uh, Nussbaum and Joel Steinberg have moved into a unit. Uh, one night in November, 911 dispatch picks up a call from Hedda. She's in hysterics. Her daughter is unconscious. They have a daughter from um, Joel's previous marriage and a son uh, adopted as well. So the ambulance dispatch the police and ambulance. Upon arriving in their unit, they find over $25,000 in loose cash just strewn about the apartment. They find a bunch of marijuana. They find over a dozen crack pipes. They find their son, like, tied to a chair, drinking spoiled milk in a puddle of his own urine. They find Hedda pretty beaten up. And then lastly, they find their little girl, Lisa, unconscious, covered in her own blood. Apparently, they had been up for three days on a bender. Joel had snapped and then took most of it out on um, Hedda and then the little girl, Lisa. Wow. She doesn't survive that night, Lisa. Um, both of them are arrested, but then Hedda testifies against Joel. So she's acquitted and Joel goes away um, for several years. Yeah. So a pretty gruesome uh, scene there. And, you know, if this was a couple of doors down or a couple of blocks down, I wouldn't really think too much. But of it's it. the same, yeah, same house. house. <laughs> it's the same house that all of this has happened and i definitely right? understand why it has the name the house of death now yeah right like i'm thinking that the spirits didn't maybe take joel's you know vulnerable intoxicated state and do a bit of their ill will right yeah definitely sounds yeah. like a very good possibility yeah. And sounds like mm-hmm. a very, a very, I don't want to say a good place, but for the t- sake of the tour, a very good place to end. I know you said you saved the best for last and that's, wow. I, I still can't believe all that happened in one house. I mean, the nine deaths in the one year is enough, never mind on top of everything else. Yeah, it's a, it's a juicy, juicy house. <laughs> and I'm sure there's a lot of stories that we don't even know anything about. Yeah, and that's the thing is I've tried to track down any sort of ideas on like what was there before the house, but I I haven't found anything yet, unfortunately. Because something like w- like why did all of this begin? Yeah, there must be a cause somewhere down the road. Yeah, like we said uh, earlier, kind of looking looking for the reason. Hmm. Yeah. Like, where's that reason? Yeah. But the case is afoot. Okay, well, I don't want you to give up too much of the ghost walk. That was definitely some very interesting to, uh, stories, that's for sure, especially that last one, The House of Death. Yeah, I, um, I, I love that one. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's a pretty, pretty solid story. It's definitely the favorite one I had that you shared with us this evening. Agreed, yeah. yeah. And, and so how, in terms of, so how long does all this take? So obviously it's, it's a two-part tour. It all happens in the same period of time, right? So how long does everything take to go through? Yeah, so it's um, uh, the whole thing's two hours. Seems like it's a about, lot of information to squeeze yeah. into two hours. <laughs> Seems like a very entertaining a two hours. I talk very fast. <laughs> <laughs> I try to get as much in without being too overwhelming with them. Yeah. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, yeah, we do, you know, a tour 
uh, every day, 11, three and eight. Um, you know, and the website's a great place to book. Um, and what is uh, your website? If anyone is interested in going on the tour in New York city, the website is nycgangstersandghosts.com. Okay. And so that you, is the best place to get information on your tours. Yep, that is the best place. You can book through there. Uh, and you can also, there's a phone number there too if you, you know, anybody has some further questions. And so you said there's tours three times a day. Are you the only tour guide? If anyone listens to this podcast and is so inclined to come on a tour, they're going to get you? Or is there anybody else who gives the tours? Oh, we have a great team of tour guides. Cool. Um, we're, yeah, we're all really awesome. Um, a lot of us are friends, actually. Um, and so it's a, it's a good group. Um, I've, you know, we shadow each other sometimes. And so, you know, any tour guide you get is going to be a fun time. Great. Well, Mac, I'd like to thank you again for joining us this evening. It was very interesting oh. talking to you about these stories of gangsters and ghosts in New York City. I might have yeah. to come. I'm, I'm a little hooked and intrigued. So, <laughs> Oh, you must. Come on over. I'm take the tour. We're not that far, so I might just do that. Yeah, no, weather is nice in the city now, and it's a lovely time to just be walking around and learning about some crazy New York stories. Definitely sounds like there's quite a few of them, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really uh, enjoyed coming on and, and talking to you. We enjoy talking to you. Thank you for joining us in this episode of The Creepy Side of America. And Emily, thanks for joining us and co-hosting this very first episode. Thanks for having me. I hope I'll be back again for another one. It was a lot of fun. I'm sure you'll be back for a few more. Maybe a few. <laughs> thanks again, everyone, for listening. And if you have a story or maybe even an idea for an upcoming episode, Give us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Our email address is ghost at WNEP.com. And until next time, enjoy the creepy side of America. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the creepy side of America. If you have any ideas or topic suggestions for an upcoming episode, send them to ghost at WNEP.com. We're dying to hear from you. <laughs>